Hello and welcome back to the Fall of the Roman Empire. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 21 called Diocletian's New Economics. In the last episode, we heard about Diocletian's accession to power in AD 284. Now, I think Diocletian was one of Rome's greatest emperors. Perhaps he was even greater than his successor, Constantine, who is really better remembered because, of course, he converted to Christianity and he also founded Constantinople, the future capital of the Eastern Roman Empire and Byzantium, as we call it, although, in fact, the Byzantines called themselves Romans, not Byzantines. So some people tend to think that the new Roman Empire which evolved into Byzantium really started with Constantine. But Diocletian was also very important because he did more, I think, than Constantine to establish a new form of Roman government. And what I mean by that is that, as discussed in the last episode, firstly, he confronted the problem of Rome's inadequate defences by building a huge defensive network of forts and walls all around the empire. But of course, this cost a fortune. And the Roman state was already bankrupt, as shown by the debasement of its coinage over the last 50 years. So in this episode, we'll look at two things, how he reinvented the Roman tax system in a way that was quite revolutionary and which would continue as the most sophisticated tax regime in the world until really quite recent times. And we'll also look at how he tried to tackle the economic crisis caused by debasement of the coinage, where I'm afraid he wasn't quite so successful. And I think with Diocletian, you need to see him as an emperor who tried to solve all of the empire's problems, but he certainly wasn't always successful. We'll get to his reform of the political system called the Tetrarchy, which worked in his lifetime but failed later. And we'll also look at his persecution of the Christians, which was a big mistake. But before we get to those, let me tell you about his reform of the Roman tax system. It may not sound exciting, but I promise you that once you get into it, you'll be amazed by what he did. The Roman Empire survived the 3rd century because of the triumph of its military commanders, especially the military genius of Aurelian. But the army needed to be paid, and its costs in the 50 years of crisis from 235 to 284 greatly exceeded the Roman state's tax revenues. Since the Roman government had no means of borrowing money, the shortfall had been funded in a rather brutal method of military requisitioning. This was called the Annona Militaris, meaning in Latin the military ration. Claudius, Gothicus and Aurelian had used the Annona Militaris, which had first been imposed by Septimius Severus, as an unofficial tax in kind to obtain rations such as wine, meat, oil, bread and other necessities like wood to feed and pay the disparate units of the army wherever they happened to be fighting. 
This essentially meant that the Anona became an authorised form of plunder. Soldiers could simply requisition whatever they wanted from civilians. The result was that municipal coffers were the first to be emptied, so urban life broke down. Temples were stripped of precious metals. Whoever's land and possessions happened to be on the army's line of march were simply seized. This brutal approach worked in the short term, but Diocletian saw that it was not sustainable. Unrest and resentment were growing. If he was to remain emperor, he had to reform the tax system, and his first step was to make the Annona the main tax in the empire, and his second was to make it fair. The background to Diocletian's tax reforms was that up until the crisis of the 3rd century, the Roman Empire had been relatively relaxed about taxation since it had few problems raising what money it needed. Places like Egypt, Greece and most of the eastern half of the empire had simply continued with whatever tax regimes had previously existed before they became Roman. In many places, these worked remarkably well. In Egypt, for example, there had long been a well-developed tax system since the days of the pharaohs. Meanwhile, Italy was conspicuous in being exempt for direct taxation of Roman citizens, although they were taxed indirectly with, for example, an onerous inheritance tax. In the Western Empire, there seem to have been three main types of tax, a poll tax on persons, a land tax and a customs tax on trade. From 298 onwards, Diocletian implemented a massive restructuring of the entire tax system. For the first time, Italy was made directly taxable. The Annona became the empire's central tax, composed of two elements, a wealth tax and a poll tax. The wealth tax was called in Latin the jugum, which taxed land and its productivity. So, for example, the tax on a vineyard producing expensive Falernian wine would be much greater than that on an equivalent plot of land producing cheap olives. The poll tax was called the caput. Generally, men were rated as one unit, while women were rated at half a unit, although there were plenty of regional variations. For example, in Dalmatia, women were treated the same as men, while in Egypt, they were not rated at all. Children were normally counted after the ages of 12 or 14, and in a sort of Roman old-age pensioner allowance scheme, people over 65 were normally exempt. One of the most radical aspects of Diocletian's new tax system was that it was meant to be fair. To achieve this, Diocletian organised a census throughout the entire empire. This began in 296, and for the first time, the empire's total population and wealth were counted. It was a gigantic task, cataloguing every field, orchard, vineyard, man, woman, child, horse, ox and pig in a coherent list that stretched from Hadrian's Wall to the Sudan. 
But this was only the beginning. Diocletian's most astonishing innovation was to link his new taxes to a state budget. This had never happened in any society across the globe before. He ordered his officials to calculate a global survey of resources that the empire needed in the form of what was called in Latin an indictio. The Anona was already a rough estimate of the army's cost and provided the starting point for the Indictio, to which were added all the other costs of central administration, not least the burgeoning number of civil servants needed to assess and collect these new taxes. The Indictio was to be reviewed every five years, although this was later changed to 15 years. The final piece of this fiscal jigsaw was to match the Indictio with the Yugum and Caput. This was a masterstroke since, for the first time in history, the level of tax would be decided by the level of state expenditure. Modern states do exactly this today when they set the government budget and adjust tax rules to accommodate it. The key point was that it was a fair system that should be sustainable, for it meant the Roman Empire's total budgetary requirement was to be apportioned across all the many different peoples and geographies within the empire on a fair basis. Diocletian was centuries ahead of his time. He introduced the first fully integrated state budget and fiscal calculation, and it worked. What could have resulted in chaos and revolution resulted in the exact opposite. From Britain to Egypt, the diverse races of the empire gave the new system a thumbs up. Part of the reason for this was that Diocletian put the new tax administration into the hands of civilian tax collectors and not soldiers. Paying taxes to a legal representative of the state was a big improvement on having a soldier with a drawn sword demanding payment. Fairness was another reason why it worked. While he instituted a death penalty for tax evasion, he also insisted on giving taxpayers the right to protest if they felt they were being cheated. Corrupt tax officials were treated as harshly as tax evaders. In general, the new taxes did not provoke dissension, although in Egypt, where they replaced a long-established system, there was some resistance. And the final result was the end of years of random requisitioning and plunder by the army, and its replacement with an efficient and effective tax system that helped the Roman Empire to endure for centuries to come. But Diocletian's economic reforms did not end there. He also tried to solve the acute economic crisis facing the empire caused by the debasement of the coinage. Now, the most common coin was the silver denarius. And even in Marcus Aurelius's reign, well before the catastrophes of the third century, there had begun a slow process of debasement with the silver content of new denarii slightly reducing in each new mint. 
This then got out of hand in the 3rd century, and by the reign of Gallienus, the empire was flooded with severely debased denarii that had a thin silver skim over a copper base. The result was rampant inflation, with the price of wheat estimated to have risen a hundred times in the period from AD 150 to 260. Because of this inflationary crisis, the Romans began the first experiments in history with what we would call monetary policy. This started with Aurelian, who issued a severely debased silver coin known as the Numus, with hardly any silver content, but stamped with a monetary value set at 20 sesterces, guaranteed by the state. This was the forerunner of what is called today a fiat currency, that is, currency guaranteed by its issuer rather than having a value in a precious metal. Fiat currencies have become the standard today, but in Aurelian's time, it was an unprecedented move. Aurelian's breakthrough helped him to increase spending on the army and fund his huge military campaigns. But his success was only temporary. Romans quickly decided that using money guaranteed by a government that cannot pay was less than desirable. As a result, inflation continued to rocket. Diocletian preferred to go back to the old system, so he reinstated a gold coin to which all coins would be linked. He did this by minting a very pure gold coin called the aureus, which was struck at a weight of 60 to 1 pound of Roman gold, which valued it at the time at 1,000 denarii per coin. This was a piece of sound monetary policy, but it did not solve the underlying problem, which was that the state was bankrupt because there was not enough gold to issue more than a small number of these new gold aurei. So Diocletian had to resort to using fiat money instead, just as Aurelian had done. And a copper coin called the Follis was minted as the empire's main day-to-day -day currency with a fixed exchange rate against gold and silver guaranteed by the government. Meanwhile, he kept the huge number of debased silver coins, which were called Numi, in circulation, but reduced their nominal guaranteed value. But using fiat currencies in this way, when they were issued by a bankrupt government unable to honour its guarantees, fooled no one. Inflation continued to rise. Diocletian's monetary policy was a failure. In exasperation, he came up with a new idea. He decided that if he could not stop inflation through monetary policy, he would directly intervene in the economy and set prices himself. The result was one of the most extraordinary pieces of economic legislation in the whole of history. This was Diocletian's famous, or rather infamous, edict of prices. This was a huge list of products and services with fixed prices introduced towards the end of his reign in AD 301. Again, 
This was an extraordinary innovation. Never before had a Roman government tried to control prices. And the new edict was extensive. Everything was included, from meat, wine, silk and textiles, to a labourer's wages and even a lawyer's fees, which were very high, even in Roman days. But the edict was a disaster. All it did was to create a thriving black market in goods and services that were charged at their economic prices. Despite its widespread initial implementation, it was quickly abandoned. What it showed was that Diocletian approached economics with the eye of a soldier. He thought he could control the economy by force. Nevertheless, I don't think we should be too critical of his economic reforms, for despite the failure of his monetary policy, his tax reform did increase the state revenues and set the Roman government on the path to becoming solvent again. And that ends this episode. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, of course, I'd be delighted for any quick reviews on whichever podcast app you use. And next week, we'll move on to what Diocletian is perhaps best remembered for, his solution to the problems of Roman government called the Tetrarchy. Thanks for listening and see you next time. <laughs>